It's Nightmares Before Christmas, Ukraine and the Russian Underworld. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. Before I start, a quick reminder to my patrons, because I know not all of you receive the uh, email posts. Once again, I'll be doing the 12 Days of Christmas, um, 12 short little bonuses, whether it's cell casts or little mini essays or photos or whatever else. And it'll be running not the usual 12 Days of Christmas, but from the 23rd of December into January because that tends to be the most sort of fallow time and I'm just putting out a a call if any patrons want to throw some ideas my way about what they'd like me to to handle in those not always entirely serious little extra bonuses. But anyway alas on to something that is much much more serious which is of course the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. Now obviously we're in a situation where military specialists and government sources are very much in a tizzy about the prospect of a full-scale war. Though it is interesting that the US government is much, much more cautious than some of the pundits as to whether or not Putin has made any actual decision, a firm decision, as to whether to go in. And one of the particular reasons for concern is that the the red lines, shall we say, the particular demands and the issues that, that Russia is very much putting at the heart of its current position, seem so extreme as to leave pretty little room for haggling or off-ramps or similar. And therefore the the fear is that they must just simply be a pretext, that when nothing comes of them, Russia can then say, well, what did you expect? So what what are these demands? Well, I mean, and obviously this is my characterisation of them. First of all, on Ukraine, essentially we are talking about a sort of imposed neutrality and also the conclusion of the various terms of the Minsk II agreement, but in the way that Russia conceives it. So in other words, that Ukraine becomes a federalised state, it brings in the area of the Donbass that that, that Russia is currently controlling, which therefore becomes an, an instrument whereby Moscow can assert influence on this particular now new sort of neutral buffer state. It's very, very hard to see Kyiv and indeed the Ukrainian people as a whole being okay with this. Not least because there was a recent survey that found that 72% of all Ukrainians regard Russia as a hostile state, you know, with, with a certain amount of reason. Anyway, so that, that's a Ukraine. Secondly, more broadly, Putin wants NATO to renounce the 2008 Bucharest summit declaration, which promised eventual membership for Ukraine and Georgia. Now, it's worth stressing that eventual. There is no prospect of any imminent membership for for either of them. 
So this is absolutely not on the horizon. But on the other hand, it would also be extraordinarily difficult for NATO to actually make a full volt fuss and say, you know what we promised? Well, actually, now that Moscow is putting us under pressure, we're not going to do so anymore. I mean, apart from the fact that it would lead to phenomenal uh, tensions within the alliance. Uh, And you've got to be be clear about this. I mean, actually, membership is an issue that requires, I think, consensus. And there are going to be countries we know, and yes, I mean, particularly we're looking at Poland, the Baltic states, but not necessarily uniquely those, who really would, would not, I think, be willing to go along with this notion. Again, it's interesting, I think it very much does demonstrate Putin's misunderstandings of the West, which are legion and dangerous. And one of them is precisely that NATO is indeed the United States' Warsaw Pact. And therefore, despite all the form of consultation and so forth, when it comes down to it, there is this notion that, well, if Washington decides, then that will happen. Sure, Washington could ensure that Ukraine or Georgia do not become members by vetoing it, but that is not as the same as being able to get the rest of the NATO membership formally to reject earlier um, guarantees. And speaking of guarantees, I mean, the next thing that that, that Putin wants is a legal guarantee that NATO will not expand further east. Now, this is this is something that is not just Putin. It goes back. It's it's been a a Russian complaint for a long time. This whole notion of were they promised? And the answer is yes, they were. No, there is no piece of paper that says we guarantee that NATO will not expand eastward, but there were numerous verbal promises from a whole variety of different politicians. Now, look, one can say, well, though, you know, times change. One can say that a verbal politician, a verbal promise from a politician is not something one should ever put one's faith in or whatever. But the bottom line is this absolutely reflects a long-standing Russian complaint and concern that basically they get fobbed off with promises that no one has any intention ultimately of observing. So which is why he wants a legal guarantee. Look, that is not possible, though. I mean, there is no way that something could be written up and presented that could not in due course also be be superseded. And much the same is the case of the legal guarantee he wants that NATO will not put potentially threatening weapon systems in countries that are neighbouring to Russia whether or not they're actually part of NATO. Now, clearly, this is particularly aimed at systems in Ukraine. But if we're looking at countries that are adjacent to Russia, I mean, that would include Poland. Is that more or less saying that, therefore, NATO should pull all its uh, weapon systems out of Poland or out of Estonia? And what about reciprocity? I mean, actually, if Russia was, was expected to pull all weapon systems out of countries that were adjacent to NATO countries, well, that would mean all of Russia. Clearly, this is not what Putin is intending. And, I mean, the final elements, I mean, actually are, are more serious. They're about uh, you know, sensible dialogue, uh, agreements to ensure a reduction of tension and so forth. I have a tendency to feel, though, that they are really just... The, the cherry on top. They're there as garnish more than anything else. That's not really what this is about. So, I mean, this is an extraordinarily wide-ranging and ambitious ask list. And it's frankly hard to see how any of them could really be um, achieved. And it's hard to see how the Kremlin could genuinely think that it could actually get any of these.
And of course, at the same time, the troops are still moving. Uh, Putin is talking in, in, if anything, increasingly alarmist terms. I mean, what his particular his statement about you know what is happening in Donbass certainly looks like genocide. I mean, as soon as you start using the G word, you are definitely upping the stakes as well as actually um, completely introducing the reality of the situation. So look, maybe, and I'm hoping this is the case, this is still a particularly extreme and a particularly, shall I say, realistic form of coercive diplomacy. That they are building up this, this massive military force, which is not something that you just simply th throw together you know, at, at short notice and is not something that you throw together without considerable cost. But maybe they're building this all up really as the, the prelude to some kind of, as they would see it, sort of serious negotiations. And these ridiculously uh, ambitious objectives are really just the first stage of haggling. After all, no one starts haggling in the middle of the price range. You propose something ridiculously high, the other side presents something ridiculously low, and you hope to reach something mutually acceptable in the middle. So, so it, it could be that there's that. Because after all, we should not underestimate the Russians' capacity to accept asymmetries. I mean, uh, they could spin almost anything as a victory. Whether it's, for example, getting Kiev to turn back on the supplies of water from the Crimean Canal which is after all something that Kiev likewise could actually spin to its own public, not as a concession to the Russians, but as a humanitarian gesture, because after all, the people of Crimea are still Ukrainian citizens in our eye or whatever. So, you know, something very, very practical like that, maybe, all the way through to kind of talks which allow Russia to be able to present itself as having forced its agenda onto the West. You know, after 2008, the 2008 Georgian War, after all, um, at the suggestion of President Medvedev, President as was then, there was created this OSCE, Organisation of Security and Cooperation in Europe, Corfu Process, which is presented as the start of a new security dialogue. Now, look, that came to, frankly, nothing, as most of these talks do. But just simply the fact of talks is also a way of bigging up Russia, bigging up Putin, and making the case that they do actually have good cause to be dissatisfied with the current situation. And it's possible that you know, other formulations could be found. I mean, you know, NATO, for example, could not say we will never let Ukraine and Georgia in, but there could be some kind of formal statement saying that at present they see no prospect for their membership in the next decade or whatever. I mean, who knows? I'm, I'm really not trying to present an, an, a, a menu of, of possible options at this stage because we don't really know whether or not the Russians are, are up for this kind of dramatic dilution of their current negotiating position. But this is, after all, one of the fundamental problems in trying to assess just what on earth is going on. It is so hard to see not only how one can compromise based on these positions, but conversely, how on earth the Russians can really think that military action can lead to a good outcome for them. I mean, obviously, they're sanctions. And it is worth knowing just how deliberately spine-chilling the kind of language we're getting from primarily the United States at this stage. You know, talking about 
um, you know, levels of, of let's call it what it is, economic warfare that has never been been seen before. So, you know, it's clear that they'll be looking to impose very, very heavy costs on the Russian economy. Secondly, precisely that there would be all kinds of direct costs from any military actions. There would be people dying. There would be a lot of money being, being spent on that. And that is at a point when, you know, the Russian public shows no signs at all of being at all enthusiastic about this kind of, of military adventure. And if Putin really is thinking about 2024, then surely, surely, actually, he would be wanting to avoid this kind of catastrophic irritant with his own people. And finally, the, you know, the risk of getting bogged down. Now, again, there are those in the sort of military analyst field who feel that actually this could be more like Georgia in 2008. In other words, um, a lightning but also convincing demonstration of force that doesn't have to get bogged down, that actually can then be, be withdrawn. You're not going to find yourself being stuck in fighting in the cities and such like. Well, I mean, maybe that's true. Maybe that is entirely true. I don't know. I fear that it's exactly the kind of plan that may look great when you're throwing it together and wargaming it with your own officers. But once it's out in the field, would it be so neat? Who knows? But anyway, maybe that's the thinking. But this is it. it it's all hard, really, to put together. So in some ways, and this is where really the nightmare element of this particular segment comes in, I thought of how about this as a thought experiment. When might this kind of grand, dangerous, even in its own terms, heroic move make sense for Putin? Now, let me really stress this very strongly. Ultimately, I don't think this is going to be the case. I'm just trying to play out what could be a rationale. Consider, you're a 69-year-old Vladimir Putin. And whatever the sycophants and hagiographers around you may say, it's hard not to feel that your glory days are behind you. You don't feel you can relinquish power, but what unrolls ahead of you is but a succession of policy deadlocks, half successes, and increasingly difficult manoeuvres to keep the public and elite in line. Maybe you even regret returning to power in 2012, losing the chance to sort of fix your reputation as the Tsar who saved Russia from the 90s and all its chaos and irrelevance, and also who brought prosperity and stability to the Russian people. But it's too late now. Instead, history no longer seems to be on your side. The economy is stable but stagnant and eventually is going to face the end of the hydrocarbon era. Navalny's in prison, to be sure, but the coalition of the Fed Up is still out there, awaiting some new catalyst around which it can bind. Even the Communist Party, for God's sake, is reviving sufficiently that it needs to be stamped on. And the latest polls are showing what only 32% of the ungrateful Russian population willing to vote for you. And if that's what Levada is saying, then quite possibly your own internal government polls are even more worrying. America may well be on the wane, but it's going to be China, not Russia, that is really reaping the rewards of this. Ukraine is drifting westwards. 
And Bielorus is only being kept from following the same kind of trajectory these days by Lukashenko's violence and your money. Where did it all go? Where did it all go wrong? And you're also genuinely angry with the West in its decadent, sanctimonious arrogance. Russia was conned from the first, uh, the weakling Gorbachev and the drunkard Yeltsin being promised no NATO expansion, yet here we are. Your allies have been toppled by CIA-instigated revolutions and coups, not least the Euromaidan in Ukraine. European courts tell you what's right and what's wrong, and its regulators try to force you to pay Kiev to send gas through its leaky pipelines. I mean, indeed, as for Ukraine, it's not that the prospect of it becoming a successful democracy really worries you, because you frankly don't believe that's going to happen. And even if it does happen, that's, that's way, way in the future. Rather, it's what it represents as a failure of you and your project of re-establishing the greatness of Russia. And the greatness of Russia clearly must also be as the big brother over the Slavic nations. And look, things are not going to get any better. At the moment, after all, Europe is weak, especially with the change in government in Germany. The United States is distracted and a bit embarrassed. China is assertive enough that it worries the West, but not yet so assertive that you need to worry. So maybe this is the chance for one final throw of the dice. You've not, after all, been in the past a gambler, but perhaps that is something that you need to be thinking about. In that context, a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, even if absolutely it will be bloody, and it no doubt will lead to all kinds of sanctions, perhaps this is your last chance to bid for a place in history as, shall we say, Vladimir the Great, rather than the Vladimir he had his moments. First of all, this gives you the chance to tame Ukraine by absolutely demonstrating not just the capacity, but most importantly, the will to bring true misery to large portions of it. And if necessary, even sort of annex it. I mean, you see all these maps that are currently doing the rounds, which sort of show rolling all across uh, the eastern half of the country or whatever. One way or the other, you make sure that Ukraine appreciates that it is not going to get the kind of assistance from the West that it needs, and you are able to force it back into your Russian Slavic common wheel, like it or not. So you have at least regathered a bit of the, the lands of the Rus. Secondly, you do de definitively prevent NATO expansion any further eastwards, because you do believe and again, I mean, I think we, we have to appreciate the extent to which you know, Putin does believe these things. You do believe that otherwise there is a very serious risk that even if Ukraine is not a part of NATO, there will be NATO assets in Ukraine that pose a threat to Russia. Anyway, so, so you will prevent that and you will also highlight its weaknesses, that whatever else, it is not really going to be there for the countries of former Soviet Eurasia. And thirdly, yes, of course, Russia will be hit by sanctions, possibly massive sanctions. But you know, you've been or your people have been preparing seven years for this. 
I mean, they have fully understood that they are in a state of war and have been building, as far as they can, a wartime economy. There's a limit to how far you can insulate yourself. I mean, the Americans and the Allies absolutely can do you serious harm, but they're probably not going to destroy Russia. And in return, well, you will have to bring in emergency measures, which, you know, let's you know, be honest, are pretty much martial law. And you have an excuse to lock up anyone else that you need to, perhaps even to put aside elections and all these other inconvenient little sort of sideshows. You've always said to the Russians that their country was beleaguered, that the West hated them and was looking for opportunities to bring them down. Well, this is what you will present as the truth. And, well, you know that people like Patrushev and Federal Security Service Chief Bortnikov and the like, I mean, they will be all up for this. Yes, life is going to be hard. Well, for ordinary Russians. Bloody hard. And in some ways, Russia will become close to 1960s, 1970s Soviet Union. And, well, we know what happened to that, but that, that'll be all in the future. But by God, no one's going to forget you. Now, look, as must stress this, I do not think this is the case. It's just a thought experiment. But nonetheless, it's worth sometimes having these thought experiments. What would it take for what otherwise seems to be such an extraordinarily, well, let's be honest, stupid move? This is the kind of thing I think it would take. And who knows? If only we could crawl into Putin's head. We don't really have that capacity. Probably, thank God. And after that, you know what? I think it's actually going to take, of all things, the Russian Mafia to allow me to bring any optimism to this particular podcast. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. For all the easy assumptions about Russia being a quote-unquote mafia state, a formulation I can't stand, but anyway, one of the answers to that is actually, look, for all that there is a lot of organised crime there, there's no question, there is also a considerable degree of law enforcement activity. There are all kinds of arrests of even very senior criminals and indeed their, their conviction. And these senior criminals include Vodiva Zakonia, the thieves within the code, the traditional authority figures of the underworld. And if we just look at just simply the cases from the last 10 days or so, so in other words, a very, very small sample. I mean, who have we had? We've had Rashad Ismailov, so-called Rashad Ganjinsky, who was um, actually arraigned in Moscow City Court. He is accused of being one of the key um, smatriashi, who are kind of, I don't know, overseers is often the word used. I mean, literally it means watchers. I suppose in some ways kind of coordinating figures or kind of plenipotentiaries of the criminal world. Um, and you know, his role, therefore, would be to manage the, the obshak, 
a sort of common kitty that is held by different criminal groupings, to resolve disputes, and, and generally to act exactly as an authority figure within the underworld. And um, he has been charged by a, a range of, of different um, crimes, including double murder, but also under Article 210.1 of the Criminal Code. That is an interesting one. It's a relatively recent addition to the Criminal Code. And it actually just simply criminalises occupying a senior position within the criminal hierarchy. Um, so it's quite nice. It's, it's interesting. It, it's a little bit like, for example, you know, similar laws that there are in Italy, where you don't actually have to prove that they committed a specific predicate offence. You actually just simply can prove their position within a criminal structure. So anyway, Ismailov, and frankly, you know, although he's only been uh, arraigned, I think he's going down. And frankly, I suspect he's going to go down for life. Who else have we had? Um, well, in Saratov, there was a recent sentencing of Besik Kvinikidze, a bit of a tongue twister, um, generally known by his underworld Klitschka, his, his nickname of Bieso Rustavsky. Uh, anyway, as I said, he's been sentenced to eight years in a special regime colony, and again, under Article 210.1. In some ways, much more interesting for me, though, was the arrest of the gangster who actually has the record for having been on the run for the longest period of time, specifically 28 years. Now, this is Mamuka Shubitidze, 50-year-old Georgian who's known as Turikela or Mamuka Racheti within the criminal world. I know he was arrested in the Moscow region in the village of Pavlovska Sloboda. And, well, wow, I mean, he has been considered the most wanted figure within all of the sort of post-Soviet space for everything from arms trafficking to killing a police officer. So it'll be interesting to see how his trial goes down. Who else? Well, speaking of trials, we had two people convicted of the murder of Japonchik, again, one of the real serious old-school gangsters who was gunned down in 2009. So that was uh, Murtazi Shadania and Jambula Javanashia. Well, beyond that, next. Yes, there's one more, I think, worth mentioning. Sorry, I, I, do, I do have a list here. I'm just deciding which are the interesting ones to, to mention. Um, Alkas Agarba. Again, not really a name that trips off the tongue, known as Alkas Godaita, who is uh, another 50-year-old gangster who has been just uh, sentenced to 10 years, again, under Article 210.1. Interestingly enough, actually, uh, Mamuka, this uh, long-running gangster, he was amongst those who had crowned, in other words, made a Vorva Zakonia of, of Alkas way back in 1995. So it's interesting because we're seeing, on the one hand, you know, a lot of arrests and a lot of convictions, but also a lot of these are convictions under Article 210.1, which is proving to be a very useful instrument. But also a lot of them are being convicted because of information that is received as a result of internal disputes within the criminal world itself. Um, because that's, let's face it, often how information comes to light, is that your enemies are willing to squeal on you. And in part, this is over disputes to do with the obshak, these common funds, not least because increasingly they're actually being plundered. People, you know, gangsters themselves, 
remember, there is no honour amongst thieves. Gangsters themselves are basically stealing from them, and also because there's a growing willingness to cooperate with the authorities, which was, after all, one of the, the big no-nos within the Vorovskoy Mir, within the culture of the so-called thieves' world. So something is definitely changing. And I think what's really quite interesting is that, in part, this demonstrates that whatever the corruption and the rather perverse priorities of much of the elite, there is still real law enforcement going on. There are cops, there are prosecutors, there are judges who are doing their job. And this, this goes back to my old uh, model of, of the three Russias, the kind of political Russia, the kleptocratic Russia and the real Russia, which you know, keeps keep carrying on un underneath that. And we shouldn't ever forget that. But I think it also demonstrates that there are some actually some quite positive trends taking place within the Russian underworld. First of all, look, one of the big concerns had often been a resurgence of national mob wars along the lines of what happened in the 1990s and definitely preventing that or deterring that has for a long time been a, a primary law enforcement priority and also actually a government priority because this has obviously been increasing incredibly destabilizing if it happened and also embarrassing in the sense of it once again questions whether or not actually the state really is in control of the, st the streets and there have been a whole variety of after all forces and developments which risked destabilizing the existing status quo the, 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 the turf boundaries, the pecking orders and so forth amongst the various gangs. In the 2000s, after all, it was the impact of growing flows, Europe woods, of Afghan heroin. Incredibly valuable product. And therefore, those gangs which were actually able to get in on the act, whether it was in terms of actually directly transporting it themselves, or just simply being able to tax it, in effect, more or less saying, yes, you can move it through my territory, but we deserve a cut. They did well, and therefore other gangs were tempted to try and see how they can muscle in on that. Then, in, in 2010 specifically, there was a particular flashpoint with the assassination of the gangster Aslan Usoyan, who was known as Diet Hassan, Grandpa Hassan. Um, and that brought with it the risk of a major struggle between two different, essentially ethnically Georgian gangs, each of which had their array of allies and dependents. And it's interesting that at that time, it was not just the state, but it was also Slavic and Chechen gangs that stepped in to try and uh, to stabilise things. And what happened as a, a result of that was that Hassan's main enemy, Tariel Taro Onyani, was arrested, but, well, when we say arrested, he was still able to run his gang He's more than just a gang, his whole criminal organisation, from his prison cell, largely using, and oh, I love this myself, Skype. Welcome to the new era of gangsterism. Um, now, the fact that that could happen, that was not just simply because of corruption or whatever, not least because it was really quite broadly known. I think there must, therefore, have been a deal that was struck. I think the authorities went to Onyani and said, look, you know, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, but... We are taking you out of circulation to try and lower the temperature and prevent the, the emergence of this mob war. But on the other hand, we are willing to make some various concessions. So that was dealt with. 
Then in 2014, with the onset of sanctions, that also created a series of sort of dislocations within the criminal world. And more recently, I mean, there is some concern about if Afghanistan becomes even more significant as a source of heroin. Hard to imagine how it could be any more. Um, but nonetheless, again, Afghan heroin flows might, might well have a destabilizing effect. But the interesting thing is that actually really since that 2010 scare, although there has been an awareness of potential destabilizing forces, law enforcement seems to be increasingly relaxed about the risk of this becoming something much, much more general. Now, why is that? Well, this is in a way part of the, the, the second broad trend that's taking place. An end to, shall we say, the nationwide networks. What had happened in the past is that essentially between, depending on how you count it and draw the boundaries, between 12 and maybe 15, big networks had emerged with two most uh, well-known one being Soltseva, essentially centered in Moscow and the Tambovskaya in St. Petersburg, which in turn had members, filiali, I don't know what you call them, I suppose subsidiaries, and such like you know, around the country. And although this was not a really strongly controlling disciplined unit, you know, nonetheless, ultimately, if need be, the network had authority of its own. Well, these networks still exist, but my view is that as they have got bigger and bigger, and generally speaking, also more and more transnational, they've also become more and more diffuse. So much so that in some ways they have become, I wouldn't say meaningless, but certainly no longer able to mobilise on a, a national level. They just become, I suppose, arrays of contacts who you get in touch with when you have a particular need, when you have some particular advantage to working together. You know, if you happen to think, OK, I, I need someone lent on in Khabarovsk, whom do I know through the network whom I can get to do that kind of thing? But the idea that there is a kind of a leadership core that can in any way actually sort of mobilise the network for underworld war, I think that's long since gone. So we actually have now no longer genuinely national criminal structures. Instead, what we have is still, I think, just a, a criminal subculture. I mean, there is Russian organised crime, as in organised crime in Russia, many of whom are not Russians. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And then we have Russian organised crime, which is, you know, I think, a basically a fairly general criminal subculture. So a gangster from Vladivostok in the east has more of a common language and a set of cultural reference, shall we say, with one from Vladikavkaz in the southwest, rather than a gangster from Vienna or Vancouver. And in this respect, it's almost a little bit parallel to what one could say about the notion of Italian organised crime. Now, there is organised crime in Italy, which is not just ethnically Italian. There are Albanians, there are Nigerians and so forth. But then there is also Italian organised crime, which I, I would say does have certain sort of similarities in, in the, sort of the, the way it organises itself, the way it thinks of itself and so forth. And yet there are also substantial differences as well as great organisational rivalries between the Camorra, the Andrangheta, the Sicilians, and so forth. 
So actually what you have is you know, networks that are often in competition. Now, Russia being that much bigger, you know, whereas the, the Kamora and the Andrangheta, for example, might well actually be more likely to, to, to compete, you know, in Russia that doesn't really work. You're not going to have a gang in Moscow any more likely to be prosecuting turf wars in the lands east of the Urals or whatever. So you know, it, it has become much, much more general. And there is also, it's worth noting, uh, an ethnic dimension to how the underworld has been changing. I mean, all those names I mentioned before, when I was running through, through my list, I mean, none of them were Slavic names. None of them were actually what we would think of as ethnically Slav. On the whole, they come from the Caucasus in one way or another. Now, look, Obviously, there are still Slavs in Russian organised crime. And to be honest, I, su I suspect, I mean, it's hard to be absolutely sure about this, I haven't seen proper data, but my, my assumption is that the majority of Russian gangsters still are ethnically Russian. However, we don't tend to come across them when we're talking about many of the, sort of the, the big names, and especially the, 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 the Vori and such like. My suspicion, and, and this is this is brought out by, by, by some data that one can still get from Russian law enforcement, is that it is particularly the non-Russian gangs that still tend to maintain the larger and um, inter-city and inter-regional structures and organisations. Slavic criminals, the Slavic criminal majority, again, I would want to stress, I think they nowadays tend to operate in smaller local Slavic gangs. And in that respect, actually, in some ways, the interesting parallel, I would say, is with the UK, where you actually have, you know, the majority of organised crime is actually conducted by gangs, firms, as they're often known, with their own really quite limited turf. And so what you have is a mosaic of small pieces rather than, perhaps as you would see in Italy, more of a sense of, 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 of larger blocks. So actually, you know, again, what, what we're seeing is that um, there are, in, in some ways, almost two tracks of, of organised criminal evolution. There is the, 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 the Slavic majority, which in many ways I think has, has, has broken down into two smaller groups, many of which will also kind of coexist and, and collaborate, but, you know, but nonetheless, organisationally, functionally, are, are, are separate. And, and larger networks of, of gangsters originally hailing from North or, or South Caucasus who still maintain, I think, a lot of the, the mythology of, of the old underworld and the, and the Vorovskoy Mir, but even they are finding that, that their, their, their combines are, are actually less, less powerful. So I think that the days of the big criminal networks, frankly, are gone and are not coming back. And as a result of that, although clearly organised crime remains a very powerful and significant force within Russia, it is not the kind of concentrated and mobilisable, if that's even a word, force that can either exert some kind of substantial impact on politics or conversely that can engage in nationwide conflict with its other criminal rivals. And that ironically enough, is actually the good news. For years, the nightmare of Russian law enforcement has been precisely nationwide turf wars. Well, 
even if the potential for war remains very much real in Ukraine, at least it does seem to be a diminishing concern within the Russian underworld. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Ты только будь, пожалуйста, со мной.